Well, I'm thankful to gather with you this morning as we look into God's Word. We're in Luke chapter 4, and we're going to be finishing up that chapter together this morning. We're looking at verses 14 through 44. And it's a passage of Scripture where we find Jesus in two different locations. He'll be in Nazareth for the first part, and then in Capernaum for the second part. And in this text, what we're going to discover is that Jesus' mission was a mission of grace, and Jesus' ministry was primarily a ministry of the Word. There's this little phrase that we find in our text. It's in uh, verse number 22. It says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Gracious words. A mission of grace. A word-based ministry. Would you follow along this morning as I read our text? We're going to begin in verse number 14. And when I finish the chapter, I'll say this is the word of the Lord to which you can respond. Thanks be to God. Luke 4, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have I to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. 
Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we give thanks for your word. We don't just say that because this is the time for the sermon. We really give thanks for your word. It is your truth. Sanctify us by it. Lead us by it. Guide us by it. Change us through it. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this coming summer, uh, I get to preach two, I get to teach two preaching classes to a group of seminary students for the Salt Lake School of Theology. So I've been thinking a lot. I'm getting a sound, the sound booth thing saying, move this away from your beard or trim your beard. Get a haircut, Lucas. That's what they're telling me. Okay. I get to teach a couple of preaching classes this summer for the Salt Lake School of Theology. And so I've been doing a lot of reading and I'm getting prepared for these two courses. Uh, and I've been thinking a lot about sermons I was reading this one book and it had an interesting question and I want you to wrestle with this question. It said this, what is the best sermon you've ever heard? I was thinking about that for a while. Okay, I can only pick one. What's the best sermon I've ever heard? I mean, think about it. Which one is your favorite sermon? Your top message? The best one you've ever heard. For some of you, maybe it's the message that introduced you to saving faith. For some of you in here, maybe, maybe the top sermon was one that helped you when you were at a point of decision in your life. I wonder if some of you, the best sermon you've ever heard was one that offered comfort when you were really hurting. Others of you in here, you're like, you want to know what the best sermon is? The best sermon is a short sermon. <laughs> Amen? That's what you're hoping for this morning. If you like short sermons, the one that Jesus preached in Nazareth is just for you. It was concise. But don't let its brevity be confused with triviality. It was small. I mean, he just preached a couple verses out of Isaiah. But it was very weighty. In Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus preaching this sermon in his hometown of Nazareth, in the synagogue, and it's almost like we get this short but iconic message. Most scholars think the reason that Luke fronts the gospel story of Jesus' public ministry with this sermon is because this sermon kind of encapsulates his whole mission. In this one little sermon, we see what Jesus was all about. We begin to understand why he lived and taught the way he did. If you've ever wondered about Jesus' life mission, this sermon explains it. So take a look at the opening of our passage this morning. And there I want you to notice that Jesus' mission was a gracious mission. And he's trying to explain that from this passage in Isaiah 61. Notice in verse number 14 that Jesus had just finished the wilderness temptation in Luke's account. And he goes to the region of Galilee. And in the region of Galilee, verse 14, it tells us that's where his public ministry is. He's teaching in synagogues. He's working miraculous signs. He's becoming very popular. Notice verse 15. Take a look at verse 15. It says that he was glorified by all. Do you see that there? He's honored, praised, extolled. I mean, he had gone on for about nine months. Luke doesn't mention how much time passed here. 
but it's about nine months that he had been preaching and teaching and doing miracles. And you can imagine his fame spreading. That's what it was like. If you want more details about that time, you can read about them in the Gospel of John. But Luke just moves us here. He moves us to Nazareth. Jesus had been ministering for nine months, and now it's time for him to go back home. That's where Luke picks up the storyline. Verse number 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. How long has it been since you went back to your hometown? When I grew up, I left uh, New York. I grew up in a small town called Durhamville, and I had all these memories about that place. And then later on in my life, I went back and visited my childhood home. How many of you have ever done that? You go back and visit? Yeah. And things are a little different than you remember them, right? I mean, <laughs> wow, that house seemed bigger. Or I climbed these amazing trees and they're like shrubs, you know? You're like, <laughs> but here's Jesus. He goes back to his hometown. But when he goes back to his hometown, people know him there. I love this, this little section in verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And notice the next phrase, it says, and as was his custom... He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And I love that little section because if anyone was allowed to skip a worship service, it was Jesus. I mean, think about it. Jesus could have gone to these things and been like, man, this religious system is corrupt. He could have gotten there and said, man, that message was shallow. He could have sat in that group and said, I don't need any of this instruction. I already know this. Right, Jesus, if anyone had excuses for not going to a worship service, it was Jesus. But I love this little verse that says, as was his custom, he, he went to the synagogue. In other words, he saw the value of gathering with God's people to worship. And I just think if Jesus made that a priority, if that was his custom, maybe it should be ours as well. Maybe our excuses don't hold so much weight. Well, here he is. He's in his hometown synagogue, the one that he went to weekly on the Sabbath. But here he's arriving as someone who's now very popular. Remember, nine months have passed. People have started to hear rumors about his teaching and his miracles. And he shows up at his hometown uh, synagogue and the president of the gathering asks him to teach. We see that in verses 16 through 18. Take a look at the second half of verse number 16. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolls the scroll. Some of us think about like flipping your Bibles to the book of Isaiah or some of us on our phones. You know, that's not how it was. Jesus is given a scroll. He unrolls the scroll and finds the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, synagogues at that time had scrolls of the scriptures, like each book of your Old Testament scriptures is written on a scroll, except probably the minor prophets, which are shorter, they would put the 12 all on one scroll. And so you would arrive at a synagogue, and depending on how large the synagogue was or how much money they had, that's how many scrolls could be found up front. So I think it's interesting, most of us are so accustomed to having all of God's word available to us in so many forms that we forget there were seasons and times among God's people where that was limited. Nazareth was a small town, maybe 400 people. It wasn't large, it wasn't rich, so probably Jesus arrives at his hometown synagogue. They've got this, this jar up front, and, and the, the president, the attendant, he goes up and he pulls one of the few scrolls. They probably didn't have all of them pulls one of those scrolls and brings it to Jesus and hands it to them. Now, this is the part that caught my attention. What if we took one of the Old Testament prophets, I don't know, Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah, we took out all of the chapter numbers and verse numbers and we stuck it on one long piece of paper, rolled it up and gave it to you. Like randomly, you don't know which one you're gonna get, which book of the Old Testament. I'm just gonna give you a roll of paper and I love this. Jesus just kind of opens this scroll 
and he's turning it this way and turning it that way, and he's able to find this exact spot. I mean, for some of us, even having like a table of contents for our Bible, we're searching, where is Isaiah 61? Jesus has a scroll. He turns it a few times to this exact spot. And this is the section that he's going to preach from. It's what we know as Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And he grabs a phrase from Isaiah 58 as well. But I just get this idea. Jesus knows the scriptures so well. He, he scrolls this way and this way and finally finds the spot and reads it. And as he reads it, you, know, you can almost imagine him emphasizing these certain words to personalize it because that's what he's doing here. He's personalizing this prophecy. He finishes it. He rolls it. Look at verse number 20. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Now, at this point, you're thinking he's done because in our culture, when people tell you, sit down, it means you're done. <laughs> but not in that culture. In that culture, when you sat down, it was time to teach. So in the synagogue, when someone sits down, that was the posture of the teacher. He stood up to read the scriptures, and then he sat down, and everyone knew he was about to teach. That's why it says, and the eyes, look at verses 20 and 21, the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. It's because he sat down. He's, he's ready to teach. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is personalizing the fulfillment. It's fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus is saying, because I'm here. It's fulfilled in your hearing because I'm teaching. It's fulfilled in your hearing because this is my mission. Now, I'm suggesting that Jesus' mission was a gracious mission. And I'm suggesting that it comes from this passage right here that he's preaching. And you might be looking at the passage and you're saying, well, that's wonderful. You're talking about Jesus' mission, but I don't even see the word mission in the text. Well, that's true. Because the word mission, like the word trinity, is a biblical concept, not a biblical word. The idea of mission is found, however, in a variety of texts. This one included. The word mission comes from the Latin word mitire, and it simply means this, being sent with a task. So think about it. What's your mission? It's your task that you're sent to fulfill. Being sent with a task, that's your mission. Well, here in this text, Jesus is saying, I was sent with a task. In other words, I have a mission. Do you see it right there? Look at verse 18. Verse 18, here's Jesus. He's just saying, this is my mission. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And he goes on and he says, he has sent me to proclaim good news. Jesus was anointed and sent by the Holy Spirit with a task. In other words, this is Jesus' mission. His mission was to preach the good news, to proclaim the gospel. And it all begins here in Nazareth. Okay, so a mission means being sent with a task. And we see Jesus, he's clearly sent with the task of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. But let me show you from this passage how this was a gracious mission. Not just any mission, it's, it's a gracious mission. Look at verse number 19. In verse 19, it says, here's Jesus. He's saying he was sent to do what? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of God's grace. To proclaim that jubilee has come. That's what that phrase means. Do you know that? The year of the Lord's favor. It comes from Leviticus chapter 25. So here Isaiah is alluding to something that all of these Jews would have known. And Jesus is picking up on it and saying, that's what I am here to do. In Leviticus 25, this is what it says in verse 10. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land 
to all of its inhabitants. In other words, you may remember this from the Old Testament or this, this may be completely new to you. But in the Old Testament law, what was required of the Israelites is that they would have every seventh year a Sabbath and at the end of seven sevens or 49 years, there would be an entire year of Sabbath. That was called the year of Jubilee. The land was let rest. Slaves were set free. Debts were canceled altogether in this year. This was a year of grace. I mean, think about it, just favor. You were an indentured servant. That year, you were set free. You had to sell your land to pay off some debts because you had some bad crops. That year, the land went back to you. Do you see this? This was the year of the Lord's favor. This was the year of Jubilee. This was the setting free of all who were bound, all of the captives. The poor got their stuff back. They were released from their debt. Things were forgiven. This was a great year of grace. And Jesus says, I was sent to tell you about this great grace. I am here and this is Jubilee. That's what he's saying in this text. That's where this essence of grace comes from. God's favor is for all of you. Notice how here he picks up from this Isaiah passage, he picks up people who are usually left out of God's favor, at least maybe in our minds or in our actions. No, God's favor isn't just for the upper crust. God's favor isn't just for the upper class. God's favor isn't just those who are doing great in life. He says, no, it's for the needy. It's for the poor and the captives and the blind and the oppressed. Do you see that in the text? When he's quoting here from the book of Isaiah, he's showing that God's favor doesn't go to the proud and the self-sufficient. God's grace goes to the humble and the lowly. It's grace that's aimed towards the poor. Now, the poor could mean the financially poor, but in scripture, it just means anyone who was dependent on the Lord. Anyone who required God's help. His grace goes to those who know they need it. The poor. His grace goes to captives. It was a message of liberty for captives. And here, think about people who are bound in chains of sin. Think about people who are trapped in addictions. Think about people, maybe even here this morning, and you just feel like you're in a doom cycle. There's no way out, no way out, no way out, no way out. And Jesus would say, no, there's a way out. It's me. It's my grace. He was sent to, to give a ray of light to the blind, those who were groping around in darkness, lost in life. He says, this is the way. It was good news of freedom for the oppressed and the downtrodden. Jesus' mission was for the needy, the marginalized, the outcast, the unlikely. It was a mission of grace for sinners like us. Now, at first glance, I just, I just wonder, how, did, how does that strike you? Like Jesus, a mission of grace for people in need. And maybe for us, at first glance, we're like ready to say amen. We're really thankful for that. Oh, Jesus, he's so good to needy people. He does such great things on their behalf. And that's how the crowd was. These people in the Nazareth synagogue, at first glance, they like it. Oh, that's what I'm talking about. Poverty alleviation. You can almost hear them there. Oh, we should get Jesus one of those Cotopaxi shirts that say, do good. He's so, he's, he's so good. Look at verse 20 and 22. He rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. He sat down to teach. The eyes of all the synagogue are fixed on him. He begins to say, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But before, it's almost like at this point in the text, just think, there's like this whispering. Before he can go on, people are, are chattering about him. Look what it says. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Isn't this Joseph's son? He's, he's one of ours. You can almost hear the whispers of these Jews. Oh, what a message of grace. Social justice warrior. Yay for Jubilee. 
He's one of our hometown boys. That's Joseph's son. They're real excited about this. But the people are wondering, I mean, in the back of their minds, they're wondering, okay, he says all this stuff, but is he going to put his money where his mouth is? Talks cheap. Let's see if he brings some of this goodness home to us. He knows what these people really want is favor for themselves. Even if it means judgment for other people. Sure, they're whispering compliments, but underneath there's a skepticism of unbelief. Mark chapter 6 verse 5 that records this account as well. It says those people had unbelief in their heart. Jesus is talking about bringing things for the poor and the oppressed and the captive and all that. That sounds really great. What gracious words. But can he really do that? Will he do that for us? Here they are. And they're thinking to themselves, I wonder if this physician will bring some of his good medicine home to us. In other words, we've heard about some of these rumors in Capernaum. He's been ministering for nine months. We've heard stories. But when are we going to become beneficiaries of this? Because we're his hometown people. That's why Jesus says in verse number 24, Doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself, what, you've heard, what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. He said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Here are these people and they were presuming upon Jesus. They expected him to favor them, even if it was at the expense of other people. Now, you may find this hard to believe that these people were treating Jesus this way, but I just want you to think for a moment. Have you ever known someone who was richly blessed all of a sudden? Someone who came into a large amount of property or they inherited a great inheritance. Maybe you don't know about him. Maybe you've only read about him or heard about him. There was someone in California last year who won $2.04 billion in the Powerball lottery. This isn't an endorsement for the lottery. It's just a story. This, this person in California wins $2.04 billion. Like one night, there it is. Ta-da! You're amazingly rich. You're a billionaire overnight. Now imagine if people from that hometown of that winner found out that he just won or she just won $2.04 billion. Can you imagine the number of requests that begin to come this person's way? Oh, would you rebuild our library? This is your hometown library. Oh, would you, would you uh, donate to the hospital? This is the hospital in your, in your hometown. Would you build a stadium? We'll call it Rice Eccles, whatever. <laughs> would you build this? This is your place right? You see people do that all the time. They presume upon others, and that's what they were doing with Jesus. We heard you did things in Capernaum. Well, why don't you bring some of that here? Why don't you bring some of the goodness our way? They were people who were acting entitled. Do you see how entitlement is in conflict with grace? Listen, my friends, God's grace is a gift. It's not something you deserve. It's not something you manipulate out of Jesus. And here their hearts were in conflict with Jesus' mission because Jesus' mission was a gracious mission. And so it's like he calls them on it. In this little section, he calls them on it. What, what, what I like in this, this part is they're saying what gracious words, but he knows their hearts. And so he calls them on it and you almost wonder if they're like, did he just turn on us? Did that just happen? When I was reading this text, sometimes, you know, I, have, I imagine yeah, I'm like thinking of myself there, listening to Jesus, hear him kind of turn it. We were all just clapping for you. And you told us we're naughty. You know, like, what just happened here? There's a tone that changes in the text. And this is what I thought of. I don't know if you've ever seen this or read this. Uh, I thought of Bilbo Baggins' retirement speech in Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring. Some of you know this one, right? Bilbo's 111 years old. He's invited all the Bagginsies and Boffins, Tooks and Brandybucks, Chubs, Grubs, and Barrowsies, 
all these hosts of hobbits to his party. And amidst the cheers of the crowd, he says, I shall not keep you long. I'm immensely fond of you all. And 111 years is too short a time to live among such excellent and admirable hobbits. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. <laughs> Tolkien writes, did he, I mean, you're, you're processing it. Tolkien writes, there was some scattered clapping. <laughs> but most of them were trying to work it out to see if it came out to a compliment. You know, like, <laughs> what just happened there? Which it didn't. That's how I picture the people of Nazareth, scattered claps. They tried to process the rebuke that Jesus just gave them. Jesus knows their proud and entitled hearts. He knows their unbelief. Before we're too hard on them, I just want to ask you, have you ever expected something of God? Have you ever presumed upon his grace? Have you ever felt like God owed you something? Like, I just wonder if some of you in here are really struggling deep down inside with some form of resentment towards God. Some sort of bitterness. He took something that you deserved. He didn't give you what he owed you. You're, you're, you're angry at him for some reason. Do you see how that's presuming upon his grace? Have you ever sacrificed in some way and then had an inkling that God should bless you? Have you ever prayed, fasted, read your Bible, given a special gift, attended a whole half week of prayer services, and afterwards you believe that God owed you something? He's going to definitely help me on this exam because I went to prayer services. Wait for a second. We can be like those people of Nazareth, people who expect God's grace, presume upon his grace, feel entitled to God's grace. And Jesus says, no, that doesn't jive with my mission. What he does in the text then is just to prove his point, he gives two examples. Two examples of where God's gracious mission went to other places. It went to outsiders because there was no faith at home. Did you catch that when I read the text? Jesus explains how Elijah, this is verses 25 and 26, he explains how Elijah was sent to help a widow but not a Jewish widow. In verse 27, he talks about how Elisha healed a leper, but not a Jewish leper. It was actually the commander of an enemy army. God's grace was for the humble and the believing, not the proud and the entitled. That was true then, and it's true today. His favor was going to bless even the Gentiles, Jesus is saying. Now, when the synagogue of these Jewish people hear this, how did they feel? Verse 29, look at how they felt. They're enraged, murderous anger. They rose up, verse 29, they rose up. They drove him out of the town. They brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could, look at that, throw him down the cliff. Jesus' gracious mission was toward all who believed not just the Jews. It was toward all. It was a global grace. And they didn't like that. Now, most of us in here have a high estimation of our theological, you know, feelings. Like, listen, I've been coming to church for a while. I've been reading the Bible. I read the Bible through the whole way last year. I think I know this stuff. Grace, I've heard of it before. This church is called Gospel Grace. I know the word. Have you ever struggled with God's grace towards other people? I think we all love grace when it comes our way. But sometimes we struggle with grace when it goes towards other people. And let me just use some examples that don't feel so pointed towards us, but will help us get the picture. Can you imagine living in Britain during World War II and hearing your pastor get up and preach about God's grace extending to the Germans? probably not a really popular message. Can you imagine being a believer in North Korea, running and hiding for your life, gathering with a few fellow Christians, and hearing one of them talk about God's grace, even to Kim Jong-un? Not a very popular message. 
We think we like God's grace, but it's usually for ourselves and not for other people. And that's how it was here in the Nazareth synagogue. I wonder if there are kinds of people who wouldn't be welcomed at your table. I wonder if there are folks who you'd never invite into your circle. I wonder if there are people who you find too messy or too inconvenient and so you hold them at arm's length as though they don't deserve God's grace. My friends, those are the very needy people that Jesus came to be grace. The poor, the blind, the imprisoned, and the oppressed. That's who Jesus came to bless. I think the key to being able to rejoice in this mission of grace is to see ourselves as we really are. My friends, you and I are poor and blind, imprisoned, and oppressed. Without Christ, we're hopeless. Thanks be to God that Jesus' mission was a gracious mission. Our text doesn't stop there. It goes on to explain Jesus' ministry. And so he moves from Nazareth to Capernaum. And what I'd like to suggest in this next section of the text is that Luke is emphasizing for us this point. Jesus' ministry was a word ministry. His mission was a gracious mission, but his ministry was primarily a word ministry. And we see that in verses 31 through 44. Remember at the synagogue in Nazareth, the people are infuriated they went from appreciation to deep anger. They, they, they push him out of the synagogue. They take him to the edge of the cliff. They're going to throw him down. In verse number 30, we're not quite sure how it happens, but like Moses passed through the Red Sea, Jesus passes through this hostile crowd. Again, we, we don't know what happened. Was it, did he become invisible? Uh, did, he, did he put on like the ring of power? You know, no, no, he didn't do that. What happened here? We're not sure. He doesn't tell us. All we know from John's gospel is this. His hour had not yet come. He would be killed by an infuriated mob. He would be stapled to a cross for sinners like you and me. But his hour had not yet come. So he passes through this crowd. And then it says that he goes to Capernaum. It's interesting in the text. It says he goes down to Capernaum. Well, it's northeast. <laughs> it's because of elevation. He changes about 1,300 feet in elevation. He descends 1,300 feet while going northeast 20 miles to Capernaum. And he gets there, and Luke has these little different vignettes that he highlights. Like he's, he's teaching a synagogue, there's a, a demon-possessed man, and he, he talks about that. He, he goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house. He, 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 deal, he deals with that. And then he's got this teaching and he talks about Jesus' teaching and he deals with that. And I think it's all because what he wants us to understand is that Jesus' ministry is a word ministry. In this final section of the chapter, Luke wants us to understand Jesus' authority. Now, have you ever thought about how different people exercise their authority differently? Like, if, if, you're the, if you're the one or two-star general up at Hill Air Force Base, you exercise your authority through direct orders. You give an order and people stand at attention and salute. That's how you deliver your authority. If you're a teacher in the room, how many teachers are in the room? I wonder how many of you are teachers. You're a teacher in the room, a few of you. You know how you, you express your authority? It's with these little letters at the end of the semester, right? F. <laughs> It doesn't mean fine, okay? <laughs> Through grades, police officers, they express their authority. They just flip these lights on and people have to pull over. They give a little piece of paper and they ruin your day. <laughs> express their authority. The IRS. I mean, they express their authority in an audit. I mean, different ways that people express authority. The question that we want to see from the text is, well, how did Jesus express his authority? How did Jesus' authority come to bear? And what Luke is going to say is this. Jesus expressed his authority in words. His words were powerful and authoritative. Take a look at verses 33 through 36. 
in those few verses right there, we see that Jesus exercises a demon and he does it with a word. He's in the Capernaum synagogue. It says this, a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon cries out loudly, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Can you imagine being in a service like this and someone gets up and starts screaming in one of those weird like movie voices? Their head turns like an owl. It's weird, you know? I mean, what have we to do with you? This is, this is happening in, the, in this, this synagogue here in Capernaum. This demon-possessed man is yelling. Now, at that time, it wasn't just Jesus, the lone exorcist. At that time, the Jews had their own exorcists, and even pagans had exorcists, people who would cast out demons. It wasn't just a Jewish belief. There were, there were all kinds of exorcists in this culture. And they would do these, these various rituals. Some would chant magical formulas to try to cast out demons. Others would recite incantations or practice these rituals. Some would recite spells. I read about one where they would recite some spell and then splash water. And that was supposedly to get the demon out at that time. There was a practice they would take a ring they take a ring and stick it under the nose of a demon-possessed person, and somehow that was supposed to cast out the demon, or they would make potions. There's records of people making potions out of a root called the baras root. And somehow the exorcists would use these different complicated formulas and potions and practices and rituals, and they would try to cast out demons. But that's not how Jesus did it. Here's this demon-possessed man in the synagogue at Capernaum. He doesn't say, hey, would you just hang on for a second? I have to get this ring off my finger. Stand still. I'm going to put it under your nose. Now I'm going to recite some spell just to say, would you hold on? I'm going to go find the baras root and, and make some sort of a potion. I think this will work. And meanwhile, everybody's standing there watching. No, that's not what happens in the Capernaum synagogue. What happens there in verse 35 is Jesus says this, be silent and come out of him. And with a single sentence, with a calm word of command, Jesus casts out the demon. What Luke wants to emphasize here is the power of Jesus' words. Look at how the people respond in verse 36. We know that's the point because look at how they respond, verse 36. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is, what's their question? Do you see their question there? What is this word? For with authority and power, he just commands these unclean spirits and they come out. Did you catch that? The authority and power of Jesus' word. He speaks and demons leave. With a word, Jesus breaks the power of darkness. With a word, Satan's clutch is peeled back. With a word, he exercises this demon-possessed individual and heals this spiritually afflicted person. Would you just pause for a minute? I wonder what sort of spiritual afflictions plague your life. Do you realize the word, the word has power over that? The word has power in the spiritual realm and the word has power in the physical realm. You see, Jesus exercises his authority, not just with this demon-possessed man, but as the text continues to unfold in verses 38 and 39, we see that Jesus' words are powerful with someone who's near death, physically sick. He heals diseases with a word. Here's Peter's mother-in-law. Verses 38 and 39. Luke, the physician, says she has a high fever, this dangerously high fever. Some of us know this. I mean, you, maybe you've had a kid who, you know, when kids are little, they, they can't tell you wh what hurts or 
what's wrong. Any of you parents in here, you know when you had a little one who got a really high fever, I mean, it was really scary for you. They're just burning up. You, you try to give them the, the, the children's Tylenol to bring it down, but, but they can't keep down the Tylenol. And so the fever stays high. You, you, you try these cold compresses, these washcloths that you run under cold water. You try to put them on the little one's head. And, and, and it's not bringing the fever down. And you check their temperature again, and you check it again. And the thing's getting so high that you realize, I've got to take them to urgent care. The kid's kind of barely staying cognizant. You're, you're very worried about them. Here's this woman, a very high fever, seeming near to death. And Jesus stands over her. He stands right next to the bed. He, he looks over on Peter's mother-in-law. And notice what it says in verse number 39. He grabbed some Tylenol and he dampened some washcloths. And it, no, it doesn't say that. Look at verse 39. What did he do? He rebuked the fever and it left her. Immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now I love that part. Of it. I mean, look at this lady. She's like sick near to death. Jesus rebukes the fever. She says, I'm in good health. God gave me enablement to serve. I mean, she goes from sickness to service in like one minute. That's for all you parents to tell your kids. Yeah, I know you're not feeling well. Get up here and do the dishes. You know, like, no, that's not what's happening. What happens, what you need to notice is that Jesus uses a word of rebuke. It's the same word used here in 39 as is used in verse 35 when Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. So what Luke is highlighting here is that Jesus looks at this effect of the curse. That's what sickness is. It's one of the effects of the fall. Jesus looks at this effect of the curse and he rebukes the curse and reverses it with a word. I mean, if you want to see some kind of like biblical theology, go to Isaiah chapter 55 and look at how God's word is like rain. It comes down and it brings forth fruit. And at the end of that chapter, it talks about how it takes thorns and thistles and turns them into cypress trees. It takes things that were cursed and makes them blessed. Here's Jesus and with a word, he takes one of the effects of the curse and he reverses it. Demons and diseases are subject to the authoritative words of Jesus he cleansed the demon-possessed. He healed the sick. He did it with a word. And the final thing we see in this text is that Jesus extended the good news of the kingdom with a word. Now, that may not mean much to you because you might think to yourself, well, I come on Sundays, I'm used to hearing the good news of the kingdom proclaimed. I'm used to hearing long-winded preachers like Will or Jotham. You know, I'm used to hearing them, right? Okay, but I want you to just pause for a second. God could have used instrumental music, interpretive dance, mimes, or theater. And those things aren't bad. That just wasn't the means he used. He was going to advance the kingdom through the proclamation of his word. And that's what we see Jesus doing. Like, for instance, in verse 32, look at verse 32. Here's Jesus. He's teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. It says, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. You find this in the other Gospels, too. Whereas contemporary Jewish teachers would have, would have taught like this. Rabbi so-and-so once said, that's how they would have taught. They would have appealed to previous rabbis and wisdom sayings. The prophets, they would go like this. They would say, the Lord has said, differentiating themselves from the authoritative word of God. But Jesus does it different. Jesus says, I say unto you. I mean, it was very different. They weren't used to that. They were used to hearing rabbi so-and-so says, or the Lord has said. But Jesus stands up and says, I say. And with divine authority, he speaks these words and people are amazed. Verse number 42. In verse 42, we get to the end of the text. 
the people of Capernaum are really excited about Jesus. I mean, they've loved his authoritative preaching. They've seen him cast out demons. He's been able to heal sick people. They've actually brought more people to him. You see that in the text. Like it was at the end, end of Sabbath. It's evening time. People are bringing other demon-possessed people. They're bringing other sick people. He's doing amazing things there. The people of Capernaum are kind of like, why don't you just be our local prophet? Why don't you just stay here? Notice verse 43. Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. In other words, the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God is going to be extended through the preaching of his word. The gospel, the good news, it isn't just for Capernaum. It isn't just for Israel. It's for the whole world. I was sent to proclaim it abroad. My friends, there is power and authority in God's word. I mean, I just want you to pause for a second and think about your knowledge of scripture. You open the first page of your Bible. The first page of your Bible, do you know what you encounter? Yeah, I know the creation story, but do you know how it all came about? It was through, through his word. Each day of creation, it says, and God said, let the earth bring forth vegetation. And it did. I mean, his word brought life. You keep folding through the pages of the Old Testament, you get to the Psalms, like Psalm 119, you find his word brings light. Your word is a lamp to my what? Feet and a light to my path. His word brings life, Genesis 1. It brings light, Psalm 119. But as we look at society and we look at human history, we find that men chose to walk in darkness and head headlong towards death. Instead, they rejected God's word. It happened in Genesis 3 and it's been happening ever since. But God was not content to throw humanity in the trash can. Instead, he sent his word. The word incarnate. Think about John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Skip down to verse number 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He sent his word. He sent his word, Jesus, to die in our place, to offer grace to all who would believe. And the call of Jesus in this text is a call to understand his mission. My mission was a gracious mission. It's a call to listen to his word. My ministry was a word-based ministry. So will you listen to his word? Will you receive his grace?